Woods Eye Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we turn the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Woodside Lake Orion. My name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're joining us online, warm, warm welcome to you as well. Beautiful Michigan day, right? Wonderful Michigan day. Again, people still ask the question, why would you move here, right? It's, yeah. So it's a, it's a great thing. Don't look, at the, don't look at the weather forecast for the week because it will make you even more upset. Uh, so just choose not to do that. Today in church history, uh, we have historically seen this as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is unique and special because it is the day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which was walking on palm branches, hence Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week, as Tiffany mentioned earlier and as Ryan did as well. It's our opportunity to uh, look at the end of Jesus' life, and it all culminates this weekend with our Easter weekend. I think one of the things that it can be easy for us to forget about is for the disciples who were with Jesus, they still did not know what the end of this week held for them. They still did not embrace the fact that Jesus ultimately would be killed, would be crucified, and that he would be gone. But that three days later, he would return. I hope that you are making plans to join us this weekend for our Easter services. We got a lot of amazing opportunities for you, so make sure, pay attention towards the end when Tiffany comes up, gives more details, or you can also find out things online. But this week of Holy Week, it's an opportunity for us. Um, I'd encourage you and challenge you if you have a normal rhythm where you uh, maybe get up early, maybe stay up later than the rest of your household and you're in God's word, I'd encourage you to say, hey, I'm going to focus on this week in the life of Jesus. I'm going to look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and I want to see what it is that Jesus went through in his last week. So maybe change up your rhythm a little bit. Maybe add some different things, some different elements to help you stay focused on the end of Jesus' life. And I think it's interesting because at the end of his life, his actions begin to reveal his true identity. You see, he had been speaking about who he was for a long time already at this point. He, as he traveled from city to city, Jesus was letting people know who he was. But people still could not believe. People still would choose to try to write it away. Even when he would perform miracles, people would still try to just explain it away. And in this last week, what we see is his actions truly begin to reveal his identity, that he is the son of man, that he is the son of God, that he is the savior, the Messiah that has been prophesied for centuries. And that's what we are going to highlight today. We're going to look at uh, today this reality that our actions reveal our identity. Our actions reveal our identity. You know, whenever uh, you get up to speak in front of people, you always want to try to 
come up with illustrations and things that kind of make sense to connect with people who are listening. And it could be a really uh, wonderful experience for sermon preppers and, and uh, preachers, or it could be a horrible experience where everything you're just like, oh, is that an illustration? Is that one? No, 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 no. So I was, uh, as I was prepping for this week, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, what, how do we, how do we engage? How do we see this? And uh, every week I meet with our student ministry director here, Matt Zellers, and we just kind of debrief over what happens on our midweek experiences for our teenagers. And in our middle school this week, they were talking about the story of David. And they were talking about the reality of all of his faults and all of his sins. You know, the, the, the churchy, maybe Sunday school perspective of David was, you've heard this before, he was a man after God's own heart, right? It's what the scriptures tell us about him. The scriptures also go into detail about all the other things that David did, which really aren't, uh, they don't really compare with a person who is after God's own heart. He was an adulterer. He was a liar. He was a murderer. And the list goes on. And the focus for our students this last week was, how does God redeem us? Even when we commit the worst of offenses, can God redeem us and will God redeem us? And of course, the answer is yes, and it's all because of Jesus. So our middle school students were talking about this, and then they broke up into their small groups, and then they had to break up in, into even smaller pairs. And they asked themselves this question, hey, based off of your actions, middle schoolers, mind you, based off of your actions, would people know that you follow Jesus? Based off of your actions, middle schoolers, would Jesus know that you, would people know that you follow Jesus? And he shared that with me and it just, boom, it clicked right there. For us as adults, we look to our spouse, we look to our friends, maybe people in our life group, maybe people on the team we coach, maybe the people in our neighborhood, maybe our coworkers. When they look at you, would they see that you really are a follower of Jesus? Do your actions reveal your true identity? Are they revealing something else? The reality is, is that we can't know the condition of a person's heart. You can't look into my heart, I can't look into yours and say, I know exactly who you are, I know exactly what you value, I know exactly what your beliefs are. I can't do that, because I'm not Jesus. But what I can do, and what we can all do, is we can look at our actions, we can listen to what comes out of our mouths, and those begin to reveal to us a little bit of who we are. And this is what Jesus starts to talk about here um, in, back in our sermon series of what now. We've been looking at Jesus as he's been speaking to his disciples in Matthew 23 through 25. This is called the Olivia Discourse, and it's kind of his primary teaching on the end of times. And he's been guiding his disciples in what will happen at the end, what things will look like. And there's all these different stances on what the end will look like. There's all these different perspectives that we hold to of what the end will, what we'll experience. But all of them point to the same reality in that Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back. And when he does come back, what he begins to share with us here in our passage for today is that there will be a judgment for all people that all of us have to go through and experience. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I get the really fun sermons, so I hope that you're ready. we got a lot to walk through today. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew 25. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31. Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. I'm going to go ahead and start reading. We'll have the uh, verses for you on the screen. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Let's pause there for a moment. We're going to look here uh, at verse 31, starting off. First thing that we see in this passage is a declaration again that Jesus, the Christ, is going to be enthroned and that he will have a glorious return. Not some subtle entry into the world like it was at his birth, but a glorious moment when he will arise, he will arrive, and all of the angels will be with him and all the people will be gathered in front of him. I don't know how we can really visualize that because we don't have any reference point for it. But it's a reality that we have seen over and over again in this sermon study, in this sermon series, that Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be a glorious, miraculous time. And no one will be in doubt of who he is when he returns because his actions are revealing his identity. And notice how he describes himself. He says, the son of man will return and he will come in his glory. These are not Jesus's own words. Jesus is speaking them, but these aren't his own words that he just created. He's actually referencing the prophet Daniel, which is about three to 400 years before Jesus's time. If you have your Bible, your mobile device, flip over to the book of Daniel. Let me show you what Daniel kind of elaborates a little further. Daniel chapter seven, starting down at verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, that's Jesus, and he came to the ancient of days, that's God Almighty. And he was presented before him and to him, Jesus, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And listen really carefully to right here. Daniel's just told this vision that he's had He's, he's sharing this with people. And then listen to what he says. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. Think about that. Daniel is sharing with people this vision that he's had of Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven and all of these angels gathering around him, all of the people being put before him. And Daniel's response is anxiety, probably a little bit of fear. And what does he say? Being alarmed. It's a big deal. It's not some soft, subtle thing. Oh, what's up? You're hanging out at Starbucks. At, we're having coffee together. Jesus is back. Hey, what's up? It's going to be this miraculous, glorious, powerful, extreme experience that none of us have ever had before. And Jesus is the center of it all. His return, his glorious return. Do we have this view? Do we expect Jesus to be like that when he returns? I think we've been conditioned by culture to make Jesus a little bit softer. Talked about this a few weeks ago, right? Like, oh, Jesus, you and I are going to go hang out at Starbucks on Friday night. We'll have a great time together, and I'll Instagram it. Or Jesus is my homeboy. I'll wear a cool T-shirt and just show everybody that, like, we're tight. We're on the same level. What we've done in culture is we've tried to bring Jesus, our king, down to our level. And you know why? Because it makes us feel really good when Jesus is side by side with me. 
He's my best friend. We go through everything together. The sentiment, I think, is okay. But the reality is, is that Jesus is on a far greater level than just our best friend. Just recently, uh, if you've been watching the news or you've been online, there's been this focus on the royal family. Um, side note, um, if you ever ask me where I'm, where I'm from, I'll kind of give you like a sigh, like, okay, I got to go through the whole story again. Uh, because in Michigan, people are like, oh, did you grow up in Michigan? And you're like, no. Okay, why did you move here and where are you from, right? And uh, one of the unique things about me, uh, by God's grace, is I grew up in England my adolescent years. So I went all my middle school and high school days, and I graduated, uh, graduated high school from there, and then came back to the States for college. And while we were there, we obviously traveled all around every weekend. And when you go to London and you go and you see some of the historical sites, there's still a lot of pomp and circumstance that surrounds those either uh, buildings or even some of the ceremonies. You go to Buckingham Palace, you see the changing of the guard, you see the beef eaters, you see the traditional royal guard in their whole get up and outfits, right? All of this is done in kind of a, a pompous way, and maybe a little bit of touristy stuff now, but it's all holding on to tradition. It's holding on to something that's been around for centuries. Let's remember, America, we're only about three centuries old. We're not that old in comparison to Great Britain. And when you consider the royal family, they don't have any authority. They don't have power over uh, what happens in the day-to-day -day life of an individual, but they have more of a reverent position. They're given respect because of who they are, because of their lineage, because of the long history of the royal family in Great Britain. They're kind of a big deal. And what we just got to experience is watching the curtain of the big deal, the curtain of the royal family kind of being pulled back a little bit. And it's fascinating, if you look at news articles, if you read things outside of America, right, if you read uh, newspapers from other parts of the world, there's a lot of mixed opinions about that interview with Oprah, that royal family members would choose to go and do that, shed a light on things that really shouldn't be talked about out in public, why would they desecrate the royal family in that way? Then you come over here to America, and what, what are we all doing? All right, that's awesome. We're so glad that you're showing the iniquity and the terribleness of this family. Now, we're not diving into which one is right, which one is wrong, okay? Or the veracity of all the things that were talked about. But let's use it as an illustration. We want to take those things that are reverent, those things that have authority, those things that have meaning and purpose that are above us, and we like, in our culture today, we like to bring those things back down to our level because we feel better when we do that. We have a sense of like, okay, whew, I'm okay, I can do this. They're no, who are they? I'm not listening to them. Why would I listen to them, right? If you do a cultural analysis, a cultural study, the generations that are younger than most of us, all of these younger generations, they don't trust institutions. They don't trust people in authority. Social media is a blessing and a curse because not only are you able to communicate everything to everybody, but the curse is you communicate everything to everybody. And everybody feels like they know who you are and what you're about. And they make a judgment call like that and they move on. So why are we thinking about this? Why do we need to put ourselves in this mind? Church, we need to be a people who sees Jesus and we revere Jesus as a king. 
not as our best friend, not as somebody who we're just side-by-side buddies with, right? We go out to the hunting lease together with, right? We need to see him as a king because once we see him in the proper place that he's supposed to be, guess what it does to us? It changes the way that we live because we look up to say, what do you want us to do? Rather than, hey, is this cool that I'm doing this? You see the difference there? We start our days by looking up and saying, show me how to be uh, with this person. Show me how to operate in this workplace today. Show me how to deal with the sin in my life. Because God, I know it's not pleasing to you. Rather than, I really need some help. Can you just come alongside me and help me? I think you're getting the point. Jesus, we need to have a reverence as a church. We need to have this reverence of who Jesus is. The way that we find that reverence is that we are people of the word that we love God's word, that we see God's word, and we listen to it, and we obey it. Jesus separates people at the end of time. This is the fun stuff, right? Let's finish the rest of our verse. Uh, Back to uh, 23, uh, 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels are with him. He sits on his glorious throne. Here's this reverence. Here's this power of who he is. And before him, all people, all nations will be gathered, and he will separate people like a shepherd separates goats and sheep. This is the fun stuff that people like to just tune out and forget about. Ah, we don't really want to deal with this. There will be a judgment. We will be judged by Jesus, our king. And he's going to take the flock of sheep and goats. He's going to say, you, you're a sheep, you're over here on my right. You, you're a goat, you're over here on my left. In the church today, it can be a hard thing to talk about and to highlight because, again, it brings us back to which one am I? Am I a sheep or am I a goat? If you do a Google study on the difference between sheep and goat, you'll find a lot of interesting facts about them. Um, That's one of the great things I got to do this week is to learn what the difference is between a sheep and a goat, right? Um, And and the reality is that they can kind of look similar, some features of them. And when they're in a herd and they're in a flock together, they would allow them to intermingle and mix and all that stuff. And so even in Middle Eastern, like ancient times, they would have a flock that's mixed of sheep and goats. And then the shepherd, though, whenever it came to either having to say, hey, we're going to get the wool from the sheep, or it came to, hey, we're going to get the milk from the goats, there would have to be a clear separation of the two. There's a very distinct, they may look similar, they may have some similar features, but in the end, they are very, very different. What Jesus does here is he shows us that there are a lot of people who are in the flock, they think they're part of the flock, but the reality is, is that they're not. There's something different. They're a goat, and they need to be over here on the left, and my sheep need to be over here on my right. We're going to come back and talk about this a little bit more. So let's jump down, and let's see what it is that he begins to describe for us about the sheep and the goats. Look at this down in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right who are the sheep, okay, come, you who are blessed by the Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And listen very closely. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Let's pause right there. 
What we see here is Jesus, he's, in this, he's still in this process of speaking to his disciples using parables. He's trying to highlight the main story. He's not saying, here's the reality of what it is to be a sheep and be part of my flock. You do all of these different things and check the boxes. That's not what he's saying here. What he is saying is, hey, people who are on my right, my sheep, my flock, when you see a need, something happens within you and you meet that need. You saw someone who was hungry, you fed them. You saw somebody who was in prison, you visited them. You saw somebody who was sick, you helped take care of them. This is what it is to be part of the family of God. When you see a need, you do what? You do something about it. Let me make sure you hear this very clearly. Don't leave here today saying, all right, I'm going to make a chore list on my refrigerator to make sure I feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, and go visit the imprisoned. Let me check my box for the week, see which ones I go do. Don't do that, because that's not what Jesus is getting at here. Let's pause for a moment. Let's think about Jesus' ministry. What he did so often is he traveled from town to town to town. He'd go there, and the religious leaders despised him. They didn't like him. People were getting all, like, excited about who this man was. And the religious leaders didn't like that, and they didn't like the things that he was saying. One of the things that he talked about over and over and over again was, hey, everything that you say with your mouth, even the things that you do, deep inside, your heart is so far from God. You're really clean on the outside. You do all this really good stuff on the outside for people to see. But the reality is, is that in your heart, you are far from God the Father. You say it's really good that you haven't murdered anybody lately. That's great. I'm here to tell you that even if you have anger towards someone, it's like you've committed murder against them. What Jesus does is he hones in on the issue and the condition of a person's heart. It's the heart that matters. It's from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's from the, the, the wellspring of your life is this overflowing reflection of what's in your heart. Jesus cares about your heart. So we jump back into here, and he's talking about the difference between sheep and goat. Those on his right, the sheep, you see all these needs, and because of the condition of your heart, there's a desire to go and meet those needs, whatever that needs to look like. Because of the beauty of God's church, it will come out in different ways. Some of you, you'll have that passion to go and feed the hungry. Live in that, embrace that, and love that. If that's not your passion, that's okay, because look and see what acts of mercy well up within you in other areas of the world. On the flip side, Jesus goes further and he talks about the goats. He says, this is what happens to those on my left. Let's take a look at this, verse 41. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Again, Jesus is focusing on here, he's, he's focusing on the condition of the person's heart. You may look like you're part of the flock, but when you're separated, the reason why you're separated out is because 
the hearts of these men and women over here is filled with righteousness and the hearts of men and women filled over here are filled with themselves. They're not redeemed. They're not saved. They're accursed is what he says in verse 41. Now, in the response in this parable, what happens is both different groups, the sheep and the goats, they respond and they say, what do you mean we fed you? What do you mean we didn't feed you? You're like, we didn't see you here as our king. We didn't see you on the side of the street. We didn't see you over here. And what Jesus, again, is showing through this parable is what you do for the least of these people, what you do for the least of the human beings around you, what you do for the least of those that you encounter it's as if you're doing them for me. So when you drive by that person on the side of the street and you immediately think to yourself, okay, they need more government because the government will help them in their life. I'm just gonna let the government deal with it over there. All of these people over here, they, they did this all to themselves. They need to find their own help. I'm not gonna go help them. They made their own choices. Is that the immediate response that you have? Is that what comes out of our hearts? Is that what comes out of our minds? Or is it on the flip side? I have mercy for this person. I wanna know how I can help them. I have compassion for this individual. I wanna know maybe there's something I can do to serve them. Maybe there's some tangible way I can help them. I don't know, but I, maybe I wanna have a conversation and ask them, what do you need? How can I help you? Again, Jesus comes back to the issue of our hearts. If you're redeemed, if your heart belongs to him, if he sits on the throne of your heart, you're part of his flock. If you sit on the throne of your heart, you're not. All this can be summarized in a really fun phrase, right? Faith without works is worthless. A faith without works is worthless. Now, if you grew up in church, maybe already you've got all the sirens going off, like, oh my gosh, he's talking about a faith or works-based faith. Like, I thought that wasn't what this church was about. What in the world? Da, da, da. Just slow down for a minute. A faith without works is worthless. Think about James. James was the brother of Jesus, and he wrote a letter as well. He wrote, uh, we have the book of James. And listen to what he says. This is James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the actual things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you would do well to believe so. Even the demons though believe and they shudder. We don't have a workspace righteousness. We don't have a workspace faith. Our righteousness comes through faith. And because we have that faith, we should then therefore have some evidence of that faith in our lives. The reason why we have so much 
hypocrisy in the church. It's because we're not willing to admit some of these truths, that there are some people who are in the church who, guess what? They're not actually part of the church. That's okay, because ultimately God's the judge. What we are called to do is we are called to love our brothers and sisters. We're called to love our neighbors. We're called to love the people who even don't like Jesus, who are said, I will never go to a church. I will never be a part of anything that has to do with Jesus. I will never have anything to do with God because I don't like him or I don't believe in him. I don't trust him because I believe in all these other things. You are still called to love that person, church. Because again, what we have to embrace and understand is that it's the condition of our hearts that God says, I want your heart to be mine. And I want to sit on the throne of your heart. Sometimes people see this passage and they see these things and they begin to question themselves a little bit. And they say, wow, which one am I? Am I over here on God's right, on Jesus's right hand? Or am I over here as a goat? on the left hand. Your faith does determine your destination. Your faith in Jesus does determine your destination. You believe in God, great. This is what James says. You believe in God, great. Even the demons believe in God. Is your faith in Jesus the one who actually saves you? Not because of how wonderful you are, not because of the great things that you do, not because of your potential in the future, not because of all of these wonderful accolades that you have, not because of your race or your family heritage or your you know, social standing in this world. None of that matters. What matters is, do you see the fact that you're a sinner in need of grace, in need of being saved, and do you see Jesus as actually being the one that has saved you? If you believe in your heart that that is true and you confess him as your Lord and Savior, then you will be saved. End of story. For us, what we do as brothers and sisters is we look at one another as a community, as a spiritual family, and we say, hey, I've seen things in your life that are sinful. We need to talk about that. We need to address that. All of this, again, it comes back to Jesus saying, I want your heart. I love you. I want your heart. I want you to look up to me and ask me what I want for you in your life. I want to encourage you. I want to give you blessings. I want to show you how I've planned out your life. I want you to experience my joy and my peace. And I want you not just to experience it for yourself, but I want you to go and share it with other people because I am returning and I will judge my creation and I love my creation and I want you to be with me for all eternity. Look at verse 46. These, meaning the goats on his left, will go away into eternal punishment. These on his right are the righteous. They will enter into eternal life. Your faith determines your destination. Jesus is looking at your heart and he's saying, I want all of it. And I want you to follow me. I want you to trust me. I want you to repent. You are my follower. You're doing some things that are just flat out dumb. 
I want you to stop because you're sinning. Confess your sin before me. I have mercy overflowing for you. Confess it and move forward. Those of you who are over here, do you recognize that you're over here? Has anybody loved you enough to say, hey, I know all the things that you say with your mouth. I've seen things that you've done in your life. And I know that you come to church every week and you say that you're a Christian, but hey, I love you so, so much. I need to ask you this hard question. Do you actually have a relationship with Jesus? Or are you just playing, playing the game? Because you may fool us, but God sees the condition of your heart. And he wants you to not stay here, but to be over here with him. That's our prayer for you. That's why we get here and gather together every Sunday morning. Because we want you to know this good news of Jesus. We want you to understand the gospel. We want you to be part of the flock, to be part of the sheep, to be part of this community of faith. Have you believed? Have you confessed? The band's going to come out here in a moment as we go into a time of response. I'm going to give you guys some questions to think about. As we sing this song, maybe focus on the words. Maybe you don't need to focus on the words, but you just need to listen with your eyes closed and think about these questions. Where's my heart? Who does it really belong to? What mask have I been wearing? Figurative, not literal. What mask have I been wearing that I need to take off? What anxieties, what fears do I have now based off of this reality of what Jesus has said? Confess that to him. Confess it to a prayer partner. We'll have somebody down here at front who will receive you. I'll be right over here. I'll receive you. I'll pray with you. I'll listen to you. Go to somebody. Go to your spouse. Go to somebody in your life group this morning. Talk with them. Or maybe ask the question, what is it that Jesus is saying to you today? Are you ready for his return? Because he's coming. Are you prepared? Let's pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.